welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the Chief Commercial Officer of Alpha H, Tina Randello. Alpha H was founded in a garage on the Gold Coast in 1995 by the late Michelle Doherty. In the year 2000, Michelle launched Liquid Gold, a glycolic acid-based resurfacing treatment, the likes of which had never been seen before by the global beauty industry. Liquid Gold soon developed a cult following, elevating Alpha H from Queensland's best-kept skin secret to a bona fide global beauty powerhouse and the authority worldwide in acid-powered skincare. In July of 2020, Michelle passed away following a two-year battle with cancer. In late 2019, Michelle was in the midst of succession planning the business and met with Tina Randello, with Tina telling me she connected with Michelle and what she was doing instantly. Tina became the Chief Commercial Officer of Alpha H in January 2020. Following Michelle's passing, Tina and the Alpha H team spent time together discussing how they could continue to embody Michelle's values as a business. In 2021, Tina launched the Encore Ship, an Alpha H initiative that has brought together multiple brands to offer women returning to work following a career break a three-month paid work placement, enabling women to upskill and supporting their return to the workforce. In this conversation, Tina shares how she ensures she's effectively communicating with consumers in a space where product education is paramount, the difference between being trend-driven and trend-aware, and why it's so important to wait it out for an opportunity that feels right. We start every conversation right back at the very beginning. So what Mm -hmm. is your very earliest memory of beauty? My very first memory of beauty, you know, when when you say that, my mind automatically goes back to a time when I was probably about eight or ten. And um, my mum was a working mum. My grandmother would look after us, pick us up from school. And my mum would come pick us up and um, straight after work. And I have this kind of vision of her walking up the driveway, wearing this kind of candy pink and white striped dress, mm-hmm. a little bit of a, um, a you know, a kind of full, full um, shoulders, wasted. And, and probably for the first time, probably realising my mum's beauty. Yeah. And I guess I define that in in a way that it was still she was you know very natural she had the princess dye flicked hair oh, made up um you know i think blush particularly was a highlight but not overly made mm-hmm. up um very natural um kind of grounded in good grooming and yeah. so everything else was just about accentuating that smelt amazing when she would give us that hug always Mm -hmm. you know her her signature scent at the time was you know Chanel number five a classic um and I think maybe most importantly just you know the wide of the eyes the big smile the happiness you know to see us but I think beauty ultimately is about kind of who we are inside and letting that shine through. And so I guess a very holistic view of beauty mm. is the first thing that I think about when I think about my first memory of beauty. I love that answer. I love it. I know that you studied science and then marketing, but when you were a child, when you were this age, nine or 10, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I was born <laughs> destined to be a scientist. There you go. Yeah, it was it was in me from a very young age. And, you know, my family, we all tell funny stories about, you know, me being out in the garden. I was, you know, collecting insects and looking at them under the microscope. And my grandparents had a very big back garden with kind of lots of, you know, floral um uh, species and trees and I would collect rose petals and you know I told everyone I was making fragrance mm-hmm. uh, and I spent hours doing that 
And um, so I think it was always very much in me. If I ever watched TV, it would be I was watching the Curiosity Show. Yeah. Um, there you go, giving away my age again. <laughs> um, and and then you know we would drive past Melbourne University and I don't know exactly what it was but from a really young age I would say to my parents I'm going to come here this is where I want to go to school I mean when you do that drive to the airport and there's the like the accommodation the colleges Mm. I I can see why you would want to be there yeah yeah wow well I mean it all makes sense because on finishing secondary school you studied chemistry completing a bachelor of science at Melbourne University so I mean, it's all a bit full circle. Yeah. Was the goal to become a chemist? Was that always the plan? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so hard as, you know, a young, um, you know, kind of someone when they're what, 18 to know what you want to do. So I think I only knew, I knew that science was what I enjoyed mm-hmm. and I knew that I was good at that. Yes. So, you know, the natural progression was to go and study science once I got into science, I guess you get exposed to the different aspects of the field and it was chemistry that really interested me, mm-hmm. um, that experimentation, the kind of what does one plus one equal and then if I make it one plus three, what do I get? So the very kind of cause and effect aspect of science is what I think I was really um, – I really connected with – and, um, and and then, yeah, it was kind of like a natural step to then think about becoming – at that point I didn't know whether I wanted to go down the pharmacy route or mm-hmm. wanted to be more of an industrial chemist, which was what I ultimately did, largely because organisations came to the university as they do recruiting for their grad yes. programs. Um, and I was introduced to what is now um, – Orica, but back mm. then was ICI PLC, which is a very big um, global chemical company, and joined their graduate program. And it was only after entering that organisation that I realised that there's a whole career path as to be, you know, in industrial chemistry beyond the academic side, which I'd really only seen at university. You completed your master's in marketing. What made you want to move into that space? Yeah, okay. So I was um, working at Orica and Orica owned the Julux Group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had determined that, you know, I wanted to move out of the lab eventually and um, move into a more commercial role. Uh, and the organisation was very supportive of that. In fact, it was only once I entered you know the corporate world that I realized that the the whole business of ICI and then Orica was essentially run by chemists and engineers who then progressed their careers to be leaders and kind of you know Mm. move into commercial roles so um, I guess that sparked the idea and then you know that felt like the right direction for me Um, and so when I was looking to move out of the lab I went and spoke to people in the organisation about what they did because I wasn't exactly sure what type of role I wanted Mm -hmm. to move into next. And um, I met uh, a lovely gentleman who was the the sales director at Dulux who gave me a chance and said, I don't even have a role for you but come and and work with me Mm. and got me working across a number of different projects and then I ultimately moved into... uh, some you know account management roles and then marketing roles but felt like a little bit of a fraud because <laughs> I was this you know chemist <laughs> running imposter a, a syndrome imposter is what we syndrome. call that now exactly um, and so I had moved to Queensland um, with the business for a role there and I thought what a great opportunity to you know upskill mm. um, learn about not just marketing but the commercial side of organisations and ultimately meet some people because I didn't know anyone when I moved there. So um, that was, I guess, what triggered the study and I was doing that in parallel with uh, working in a brand management role, which was my first one. I was looking after the Berger paint brand and then I went on and worked with Dulux. You also worked in the food space, so I feel like we've got sort of design and food there. That was the first... 18 or so years of your marketing career this might be a stretch but what were some lessons that you learnt during that time when your Mm. career was in its infancy that you've found you're applying to the world of beauty yeah 
Well, I actually really, you know, and I take this approach when recruiting people. I actually really love the diversity that my background affords me. I, I like to think that I look at the industry with a fresh perspective because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really do think, as I said early on, that, you know, beauty, I think about beauty quite holistically. I think about it in a lifestyle lifestyle sense. I think about it in a wellness sense. And I think, you know, particularly my time in food really taught me a lot about wellness. Um, I think the, the probably the most important thing that I learned and I, I still kind of learn today but but no and it's really my driving force is that what makes great businesses what makes great brands what makes great teams are people mm-hmm. and you know I was really lucky through my career to work with great people who opened my eyes to different pathways that were really honest with me about my strengths and the areas that I had to develop um, and who ultimately I just really learned a lot from. And, you know, I, you know, that's just, that's the number one thing I think about when I'm joining an organisation about what's the team, who are the people that are going to come together and make this a success and ultimately really enjoyable because we spend a lot of time at work mm. and um, I have two children and, you know, when you leave your family to come to work, I think you have it has to be fulfilling but it has to be enjoyable and it's the people that mm. really make the difference. So people and working with great people and learning um, and, you know, I like flat structures uh, so that we can all learn from each other. So that's definitely very common um, across every organisation. I don't think that will ever change over time either. Uh, and then really I think it's about whether you're you know, in, in the market of food or uh, interior design or beauty, it's really about understanding your customer. Who, who, who are you here for? Mm-hmm. Who are you servicing? And and what are their problems or pain points, if you like, that you're trying to solve for? But not looking to them for the answer because often we don't know as a customer, we don't know what we want until we ultimately have it in front of us and are using it. So being aware and being very focused on who it is that you are developing products or services for, um, but then having the vision yourself, having the vision of who you want to be, what brand you are creating, why you exist, what what how you want to innovate the, the industry um, and, you know, taking risks and being prepared to fail and get things wrong sometimes and hopefully get lots of things right along the way. Uh, and, and, you know, and ultimately, you know, having values be that driving force for not just the brand but, but the team mm-hmm. as well. And I don't think any of those things change, um, hasn't, haven't, haven't changed over time and they, they certainly don't change industry either. Mm-hmm. Of course, we are here to talk about Alpha H, but I would love to quickly touch on your role at BWX as you mm. were there from 2017 to 2019 looking after Sukan. What can you tell me about the beauty industry in 2017? What was it about the beauty industry that was of interest to you and kind of drew you in? Well, I actually always wanted to work in the beauty industry and I had met with organisations throughout my career Mm -hmm. but just never felt that I found the right fit, the the right cultural fit, the right um, team fit, the right brand fit. So I never took on any of those opportunities. But when I was approached to join the Sukin business, um, which then went on to become the BWX, Mm. um, natural beauty business, what I really liked about the brand was it was was looking at beauty in a very different way. It It was about, very much about transparency. It was about no compromise when it comes to natural products and obviously people at the time were using those types of ingredients typically you know at that point for health reasons um, or or lifestyle reasons Mm. or or values based reasons and I think what they demonstrated was they could create really great products that were not a compromise um, for those people that wanted and needed to use products like that. And then off the back of that really opened the gates to people making those choices, not because they needed to, but because they wanted to. Um, I think um, 
you know, the, the diff, the, what happened, what was happening at that point was we were seeing more and more startup brands mm. and that just didn't exist when I was, you know, starting my career. And so you had some really exciting brands and exciting founders doing things differently, looking at the industry differently. And I think that has only been really exciting for the industry overall. And I think for natural, the natural skincare um, area. I mean, it's. I, I'm still a big fan of it. I, unfortunately, it, it has become somewhat tainted because yeah. what was, you know, transparency of ingredient, unfortunately, has been misconstrued by some to be, um, you know, to put fear. There's a little bit of fear, fear mongering, yeah. um, which, which you know, isn't isn't maybe the intention but I think is the result of mm. some of it so it has probably got a little clouded but ultimately if you take back take it back to what was Sukin trying to do it was about giving the consumer choice mm. and transparency in the ingredients that they use um, and and I think that still holds very true in the industry and is a really positive was a positive step forward but potentially you know has lost its way there was a beautiful little nugget of advice there. You saying that you'd always wanted to work in beauty, but you know, it hadn't felt right. Mm. Other organisations that you'd spoken to, that is such a good piece of advice because I feel like if people have a specific industry in their head, they'll just grab the first opportunity, even if it isn't quite right. And then you know, six months a year down the track, they're going, "Oh no, I made a grave error here." Yeah, yeah, it's got to well, feel right. I I remember getting the um the job offer to go to Fonterra, which is yep. a big, the big New Zealand um, dairy co-op. Mm. And, and on the same day also got a job offer to, to um, join the Adidas group. Ah. And my friends thought I was crazy not going to Adidas because it was obviously much more sexy yeah. and a lot more interesting, in, interesting. But I joined Fonterra for a number of reasons, largely because it was the person that I was going to work with who I thought I could learn a lot with. Mm. And I thought that that industry and, you know, what was, you know, back then FMCG or fast-moving consumer goods was the area of marketing where you had access to the most area of data. Mm. And, you know, it was the data that could inform what, you know, I thought at the time would be more informed and sophisticated, sophisticated marketing. Obviously, now we have e-commerce, and so we sure. have that access to that across the board. But, but back then, that was the driver. So, yeah, I think the that's true for my career. It's don't necessarily go to the most, um, you know, what's seen as the most kind of interesting and exciting mm. brand or category, because sometimes the learning can come. In, in other industries and you eventually get to where you want yeah. to get to. That's such good advice. Let's talk Alpha H. It was in January 2020 that you became Chief Commercial Officer. What ex I, You can go on as long as you need to here because I imagine <laughs> there's a bit to it, but what excited you about the brand? What did you feel Alpha H were doing differently? Yeah, well, the first thing was I really connected with Michelle, mm. our, our late founder, and her, I guess the stage of life where she was at, she was unwell, she was looking to succession plan mm. the brand. And, you know, when you do that, um, particularly in the situation that it was, um, that, that the brand was in and she was in, uh, I had to really feel a connection with her and yeah. a connection to her vision. Um, because it's not just taking on a brand, it's really taking on the, her life mm. and, and you know, the, the very strong vision she had for the brand. So the first thing was really a connection with her and her story. She had created the iconic product that we all know, know today as Liquid Gold. Mm -hmm. And it's not very often you get approached by an organisation with such a strong product. Yeah. Uh, I used it. I had not used it before. I ah. used it, yes, and um, have become a huge advocate and and fan of not just liquid gold but but exfoliating and and I think what's so exciting about it is you know in the skincare industry I guess we 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 wait for results and we have to because that's ultimately how the ingredients work on the skin but 
you know, the exciting thing about exfoliation, it's one of the, the, the few product categories where you can and you do get an immediate result. Mm. And I think that's part of the success of, of liquid gold and part of the success of exfoliants as, as a category. So I thought liquid gold was a really great foundation to build out the brand. Mm. Uh, I really also connected with what the brand was doing at a sustainability level. So yes. already at that point, uh, packaging was at 30% PCR, post-consumer recycled content. Uh, all of the liquid waste was getting recycled uh, into, um, you know, vegetation projects and, and uh, uh, products for um, enhanced vegetation. And, you know, already on the buildings um, up at our manufacturing site at Helensvale, we had installed a, a number of solar panels. So the business was running significantly off solar, Amazing. which I loved as a, you know, an organisation based on the sunny Gold Coast, mm. you know, using the natural resources to run the business. And what we've actually been able to do since then is increase that net solar network. So about 60% of our energy needs are produced ourselves from our wow. own solar network. And then what we have done most recently is move everything now to green energy. So whatever mm. we can't produce ourselves ourselves um, is now being produced. Well, we now then buy in from renewable sources. Amazing. Your role, we were talking before we started recording about the education piece that comes with a brand like this. Your role sees you lead global marketing, innovation and digital. The way that brands communicate with consumers is so interesting to me. Alpha H is the authority on accelerating acids, so ingredients like glycolic as we've touched on. The concept of acids in skincare, I know it's daunting to people who aren't already across it or haven't used them before so from an education standpoint how do you go about breaking that down for new consumers because I mean for people who haven't heard of them the thought of putting acid on your face is terrifying <laughs> so how do you break that down and make sure that they're not terrified you know it's our number one goal is mm -hmm. to democratize acids and yep. to make them accessible for everyone Almost everyone, I'm going to say almost everyone because I think everyone is a very absolute term and I can't be 100% sure of that and the scientist in me never goes down that path. Yep. However, acids really can be used, uh, for, most people can use, use them and, and get great results. So that's our guiding light is how do we move towards that? And we know from our data that you know, we're, we're a way off in terms of the number of skincare users who are using acids. Um, the category's got good penetration and it's growing, but there's still a big gap between the number of people who actually are aware of acids and mm. want to use acids, but still don't. Yeah. And that's kind of step one, aware and people that want to consider them as ingredients, but but have not gone down that path. Kind of step one is, is that that group of people and the barriers are fear mm. the barriers are you know perceptions of uh you know acids are harsh acids might not suit a, a kind of sensitive or sensitized skin yep. uh and and just you know confusion really of which yeah. one would i use so uh i guess everything we do is really grounded in science yep. um that's probably not surprising that I lead the brand you know with that intent and so step one for us is doing the due diligence on every product and really understanding what is happening to the skin uh, how does it work on the skin is it safe for who is it safe for and, mm. and be really clear in in how we then um, promote that product to the right people uh, and about 5% of all of our, our sales go back into research, innovation, Amazing. technical testing, um, clinical testing, and even for products like liquid gold. I mean, we've just recently come out of another clinical where we were testing it with um, our new product, Golden Haze Oil, mm. which we'll talk about, I know, a little bit later. But uh, ongoing testing because I think you can only educate when you are very clear on what you are educating and when you have the science to back it. So 
It's something we take really seriously. Our products are active. They work. Mm. And the worst thing that can happen is someone uses the product in the wrong way and has a reaction or actually just doesn't get a result. Yeah. Because we're all about being purposeful in what we do and we want people to get the results and we know the results are there. So education is a really big part of what we do. Uh, it's about kind of chunking down that education into bite-sized pieces because it can be really complicated. So when we're launching a new product, uh, we will start quite broad and we'll go quite in depth into the science of the ingredients onto the skin, the chemistry of the product, what's happening, how does it work, what are the results. But then we really, our, our education team are, are really focused then on breaking that right back down depending on who we're talking to, who we're educating, what is the channel, and just reinforcing and constant reinforcement. Let's talk specifically about liquid gold because it's it's so interesting that education is still such a key pillar when you look at the product's history. Michelle founded the brand on the Gold Coast in 1995. It was only five years later, so in 2000, that she launched Liquid Gold, which, I mean, just to make it all about me, that was my first introduction to what I consider to be proper skincare. It was Christmas mm. 2010. My parents got me a, like a stocking filler gift set and that was it for me. Liquid <laughs> gold forever, 12 years on, still as madly in love with it as I was then. Love that. For the uninitiated though, a few questions on liquid gold. Firstly, what is it? It's a treatment. Mm -hmm. It's a treatment for the skin. It is a chemical exfoliant. Mm -hmm. It is made up of 5% glycolic acid and it is complemented with ingredients such as silk proteins and licorice root uh, and other ingredients that essentially collectively work to not just exfoliate the skin, to really support enhance brightening, but also hydration. Mm. So when we're exfoliating the skin, we're always really mindful. We don't want to be drying out the skin and we want to be adding back to the barium. Uh, what makes it different though? I mean, most brands have a chemical exfoliant, sure. if not many in the range. And what makes us different is the way we, the chemistry. Um, and, you know, this is why I'm here is mm -hmm. because that was what excited me about liquid gold. That was what excited me about Michelle's philosophy, not just the ingredient, but the chemistry around it. And it's the pH of the product that takes the skin out of its comfort zone which mm. our skin not to get too technical likes to sit its happy place is about a ph of 5.5 yeah um, liquid gold is formulated at a ph of 2.8 and so what it's doing is it is taking the skin out of its comfort zone in a very controlled and safe way essentially giving the skin a workout yeah and, you know, this process, and I do like the analogy of, of going to the gym yeah. um, and giving our bodies a workout. That's essentially what we're doing. And it's about building resilience. It's about, um, you know, working at those lower levels of the skin. It is about boosting collagen. And that's over the long term. But immediately what is happening is we are simply removing the dead skin that sits on the surface um, of our barrier and essentially creates unevenness, dullness. And so that, that very immediate removal of dead skin is what gives us that morning glow, what, that gives us that luminosity that you know, most skincare users today are saying they want and they love. And it's really just about making the most of the skin that we have. It's about revealing that more youthful, bright skin. So that's essentially, you know, liquid gold. It, um, you know, we, we still test it, as I said. We still compare it to other products that are out there. And we know it's as good as it was mm. um, when it was launched and uh, is still our number one product. That it doesn't surprise me. I just remember not knowing I, – I had absolutely no understanding of what glycolic was, but I am a chronic teacher's pet. So if the instructions on the back of a product say – that you shouldn't be using this every single night. I'm not going to. Mm. So I never had any issues with it. I just knew. I looked forward to the nights that I was using it because I knew my skin would be so bright the next morning. Yeah. Oh, it's a dream. And, and, you know, like 
well, some people do, but, you know, for most of us, you know, we will probably go and have a heavy workout every other day. Mm-hmm. Exfoliating the skin with a product like Liquid Gold is a bit the same. So we're talking about skin cycling a lot yes. um, these days, but it was actually something that Michelle talked about from day one. So mm. we would always talk about using it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, giving yourself a night off in between to allow the skin a rest day essentially. Mm. Uh, so, And that is still the way we recommend it. We also recommend that you don't put anything over the top of it. Yes, and um, the reason for that is that the the risk is that you are buffering the chemistry, which we take a lot of pride in and mm. we know that is the, the recipe of how we get the results. So if you are layering lots of products over the top, um, you that's the risk that you mm. do buffer. And, and, you know, the data does show that. You do impair the rate of, exfo- of skin exfoliation. So we suggest not using anything else. I think it's a great, you know, in terms of being, you know, a minimalist with our skincare um, routine and certainly kind of thinking about the cost of our skincare routine. I think it's a really great story for that as well. Um, and really not using products unnecessarily and certainly not impairing the performance of a product now some people choose to and you know we know that the product still works if you do want to put a moisture Mm -hmm. over a top if you do want to put an oil some people prefer that comfort and that feeling and and that's okay we know the product still works but certainly we've always recommended the skin cycling um, methodology and and to use it unadulterated on the skin I love that skin cycling has this catchy name now because I've just been you know doing it out of habit and the science for years but it's you know give it a catchy name so everyone's on board we know that liquid gold has a cult following today although you weren't physically there in 2000 for the launch do you know what the response was like was it an immediate hero product or was it more of a slow burn it when michelle launched liquid gold it was still at a time where acids were not commonplace in fact you know people were still you know, warning against using chemical exfoliants for fear of thinning the skin or impairing the barrier. So there, it was not an instant success until people used the product. I think what was very clear, and in fact, the way the product got its name was that Michelle was prototyping the product and gave it to a friend. And the friend said, this stuff is liquid gold. (laughs) And hence, hence how the product got its name. So once the product was used, people were hooked, mm-hmm. but actually getting it into their hands was was the challenge. And that's why Michelle actually built the brand. A lot of what she did back then was um, accessing globally TV shopping networks yeah. because that was where she could actually get in front of an audience and tell the story and explain the science. That doesn't surprise me because... The other brand where I know that that strategy works and has it did work and still does is um, the beauty chef. Carla Oates has yes. said the same thing, and I see the you know the similarities there in that education is such a massive part of it. You need someone standing there and saying, "All right, let me break this down yeah. for you." Yeah. Mm. Yeah, obviously today, you know, we have more channels where we can do that education. But back then, uh, it was more challenging. And that's why she chose that that channel. And actually, in the UK, I've just just come back from there. You know, that channel is still a really big channel Mm. for us in that market. From a marketing perspective, how do you ensure that products that are now upwards of two decades old remain front of mind for existing customers? And also enter the periphery of new customers. It, it's a it's a really um, fine balance between mm. supporting existing products and then looking to opportunities to innovate and launch new ones. And as a brand that is twenty seven years old, uh, and I often describe us as a twenty seven year old startup because we do <laughs> have this amazing legacy. And we have a set of products that are tried and tested and have really stood the test of time. But as an industry, we are also very obsessed with newness. Mm-hmm. And so it is it's a very, very it's a it's a fine juggle. Uh, and ultimately, what we what what I 
did when I first joined the organisation was actually look at the portfolio and there were a lot of products. As you can imagine, when a brand's been around for 27 years, just like when we've maybe lived in a house for 27 years, you you accumulate a lot. Yeah. And so the benefit of Fresh Eyes was the ability to look at the range and, and curate what we believed and what the, the, the evidence told us were, were the right products to have in the range. And so we cut it right back. And today we actually only have 27 mm-hmm. products in our core range. Um, many we retired. Yeah. Um, some we reformulated. But we've kind of brought it right back down. And the way we are always thinking about the portfolio is with the customer at the heart of it. And... It, there's, there's, there's three groups. We kind of group all of our products into these three categories. We exist because of our love and passion for exfoliation. So mm-hmm. the kind of central pillar of, of exfoliating and acids is the heart of everything we do. And whenever we're developing a new product, we're always thinking about, well, how does it work on the skin when you are exfoliating, when you are using our other products? Um, and then the other two, what I call shoulder ranges, are um, preparing the skin before we use acids, which is a really important step and one that is not always respected. Yeah. So using a pH balanced non-foaming cleanser to really respect the barrier and prepare it for using me for using um, acids. And then equally, you know, after using acids, how do we protect and nourish and restore the skin? So there are three pillars and everything we do and educate on really all, always comes back to those three. Uh, and when we're thinking about launching new products, it's really about, well, what are the gaps in the portfolio but then there are so many products in the industry and so mm. we always challenge ourselves when we put our you know when we think about it from a sustainability standpoint is well should we launch a product mm. and does the industry need it so if we have an idea for a new product we will always go and see what exists and we will challenge ourselves to see whether we can do it better and if we can't we don't You've given me a really good segue because I would love to talk about the innovation side of things and working out where there is a gap that needs to be filled. The brand's newest launch, as you mentioned, is the Golden Haze Face Oil. How does the product development process work for you? Are you and your team working off consumer demand? Are you constantly thinking about what might come next? Is it a bit of both? How does it work? It's We're constantly thinking about what's next Mm -hmm. we're constantly you know looking forward we're always looking at what our customers are telling us that's where it really starts and and ultimately ends we are aware of the trends but today's world the trends move so quickly Mm -hmm. Uh, if you are simply innovating based on trends you'd have to be super fast Um, because by the time you launch a product in today's world with the Mm post-covid supply chain challenges you will be late yeah so we tend to not be trend driven but but trend aware and we're really looking at the data and we're looking at where our customers are at and what their needs are. And you know, particularly over the last couple of years, what we saw during COVID was, and, and really what fueled, I'll talk about a product to give you an example, mm-hmm. but the launch of our melting moments, oh. um, mel- melting moment, cleansing balm. Can't bum, keep it in stock. We cannot <laughs> keep it in stock. It has been a huge success. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good demonstration of how we think about product launches so that was a gap that we had in the range and that was and and there are some lovely products out there what we were trying to do was make something that was tapping into where we understood our customer was at and where they were at was they were locked in their homes they were looking for self-help they were looking to you know give themselves um you know, something beautiful at the end of the day. Yeah, it's like a moment of respite. Um, that's right. Mm. They were looking to feel good about themselves. So we wanted it to really, we wanted the product to feel beautiful. We wanted the product to work particularly well. Um, we know that it, what it needed to do was remove SPF because we knew that trend was not going to slow down anytime soon. And as an acid brand, we always recommend yeah. that people SPF and protect the skin. 
And the other thing we knew would happen is as we started getting out and about again, we knew makeup would, would come back into um, the forefront. And we also wanted something that was really powerful in, in removing makeup. And so those three elements, if you like, developed that product, which we launched you know, as we were coming out of lockdown and has been a huge success. But it's really, it was a mix of, you know, what what is a gap for us? What exists in the market and how could we make this a superior offer and then what do we know is happening in life for our customers and what will happen in the months to come and the most recent launch we looked at it in a very similar way what we have seen over the last couple of years is a a steep rise in impaired barriers yeah unfortunately often driven by overuse and incorrect use of actives, including acids. Yeah. And we were, we've been very focused on, on that from an education standpoint, but also how do we develop products that can balance out a skincare routine and give back to the barrier? And our data was also telling us that dehydration was the uh, number three pain point for our customers ah. after premature signs of aging and after blemishes and breaks breakouts. Yep. Next is dehydration. And when you think about it, you think, well, there are lots of products on the market that can solve yeah. that problem, yet it's still a big issue. Uh, and, you know, I think the other part of the story was, and it's something that not a lot of people talk about, but we all know uh, about what, what sun the sun can do to our skin in terms of premature ageing. We often don't talk about transepidermal water loss Mm. and dehydrated skin. And that's actually the second biggest driver of premature ageing. So we were looking at all of this and thinking about, well, how do we create a product that it can be a standalone product, but could also work well with liquid gold. And we developed this uh, gorgeous golden haze oil Mm -hmm. Um, with that insight in mind and it's a blend of nine omega fatty acids and it um, is it was designed in a way so that it has a really good absorption onto the skin you know we did not want to feel like we were walking around with an oil slick on the surface of our skin and but but yet still gave that nourishing um, Mm. that nourishing impact and so what we did was work with nine oils of just different um, molecular weight so that we could balance out the right level of penetration but also those that would sit more on the surface of Mm. the skin and do it take the insight from the melting moment balm where we wanted to create something that allowed our customers to feel beautiful did that with this very gorgeous scent that we curated which is nondescript and it's you know gender neutral uh, and not too powerful but but really distinct and and captivating Uh, and it was designed so that it can be used as a standalone product Mm -hmm. but for for people that do use liquid gold and want more comfort that you can use it afterwards and we know that the the rate it will still accelerate the rate of exfoliation Mm -hmm. for the skin compared to what will naturally happen it's a beautiful product it's, and I'm glad you used the word comfort because that's how I would describe the texture. It's a comfortable oil. Not a lot of. Yes, mm. yes. And that's exactly the process we went through, tried everything and then said, well, how could we make something that we love yeah. um, and feels better on the skin? Let's talk about the brand itself. The manufacturing facility is here in Australia, which I think you mentioned before which I know gives you access to local ingredients and local suppliers. A broad question, but why is it so important to source from and work with those local suppliers? We're always thinking about our footprint. Yeah. And we know we are a business that makes products and we're really aware of that. Mm-hmm. And and I recently, you know, did a piece around, you know, brands talking about sustainability and saying they are sustainable. Mm. Our goal is to just keep getting better and reducing our footprint. And when we think about ingredients, unfortunately in Australia there is not an industry for acids. No. There are there we cannot get our acids locally. So we do source those globally. 
But what we have in Australia is an abundance of amazing botanicals that can either give us really lovely scents, but actually can be really nourishing on the skin. And the way we, our approach when we're formulating our acids is is to think about them in a real balanced sense because we're really mindful that not everyone will use them in the right set, yeah. in the right way. So if we can build into the formula that protective mm. element, so this real balance of exfoliating the skin but at the same time giving back to the barrier, we know that will give the product the best chance of not being misused. And so we work with a number of local growers um, near the, the, the operations in Helens Vale that are based around Queensland and, and Byron Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, terrible places to go and visit, Oh, of it must be awful, you <laughs> poor thing. And they are honestly on a global stage, you know, the so innovative mm. and gorgeous people and working with Indigenous growers and doing some really lovely work and producing some amazing products. And so for us, if we can source those ingredients really close to the factory, then it's just, you know, it's just reducing the mileage that those ingredients ultimately have to travel because we know we are producing products Mm. that end up across the globe. So we're just always looking for ways of reducing that footprint but also celebrating who we are as an Australian brand and supporting our local industry because particularly when we talk about the brand in in our key markets of the US and the UK that's a story that they love and Mm. we're really proud to to share. Let's talk about support staff wise the brand is comprised of over 70 percent women I know that advocating for women is really important to you in particular as it was you who founded the Encore ship last year tell me about the Encore ship and why it's so important. Yeah, when when we lost Michelle, we came together as a team and one of the things we revisited was who are we as a business, who are we as a brand, who are we as people, what are our values mm. and what were the values that Michelle started the business on and we feel passionate about not just continuing but accelerating and expanding. And what Michelle was really wonderful at was supporting other women um, and she was involved with a number of organisations but also at a personal level mentoring other entrepreneurs throughout Queensland and particularly the Gold Coast region and we wanted to continue that but expand it beyond just being Queensland as now an Australian brand Mm. not just a Gold Coast brand um, and also have an impact into all of the markets in which we operate and it was 20 2020 and you know we were living through COVID and I was reading the paper and I'd seen the kind of first set of data out of the ABS that was talking about job losses and the disproportionate impact that that had had on women Mm -hmm. um, particularly in Victoria but equally across the country and we were discussing it as a team and we all had stories of someone in our life who gave up work, often because of having children, um, to care for children, gave up work and, you know, the one year becomes two years, becomes three and and then that process of getting back to work is really challenging. Crazy. And so what we uncovered and I, I... I met this amazing woman called Leonora, Leonora Riss, who is an academic at RMIT, who mm-hmm. who studies women and um, and the economics around women. And it was really clear when you we dive into the data that this impact that caught our eye because of COVID it was not a COVID issue for women. It's actually a very long-standing. Um, issue and and women find themselves um, typically at the point in their life after having kids yeah. where they take take time out and that return to work uh, for those women who want to come back mm. and, and we you know for us it's about saying if you want to work we want to give women the chance to do that but it's hard because when you take time out your confidence takes a hit 
your, you, you perceive your skills to not be as current, your connections are not as current. And, and often, you know, that, that process of coming back is really hard. And so we came up with this idea that we would create this, what we first called as a, you know, an internship, but mm -hmm. then redefined as an encoreship, recognising that these women are not interns, that they are experienced, amazing women with so much to offer and actually all they're doing is coming back for their encore. Mm. And so the encoreship idea was born out of this idea of just opening up our doors to a woman who had been out of work for an extended period, and we just loosely define that as a year, that we would enter them, allow them, well, not allow them, but welcome them into our organisation and give them a chance to come and work with us and um, form connections and refresh their skills and work on a project or multiple projects ultimately to then create a platform to go and talk to someone else about which is ultimately really what you need when you're yeah. sitting in front of a, a, a you know a future employer and you know that felt great for about you know five minutes and then you know when you really think about that as it with with respect to impact it was really not going to be overly impactful mm -hmm. so uh, we had the idea of talking to our network and seeing who else might be interested to come on this journey with us and join what we then coined the Brand Collective. And so I just started talking to brands like Adore Beauty, who is one yes. of our, you know, long-standing and, and um, you know, major retail partners and um, organisations like Mamma Mia, who mm -hmm. we were working with, and a number of other brands, really just where we had personal connections, either through the business or personally. And the feedback and what I saw in every conversation was amazing. And, and, and it was a consistent story of we've been wanting to do something for women. Mm -hmm. And these were largely female-founded, women-focused businesses. But we haven't really known how to do it or what to do and didn't want to just write a check to an organisation. Yeah. We wanted to be involved and, and, and be personally involved. And so we got together six brands uh, year one and we all put up a three-month paid encore ship and welcomed uh, women into the business mm. and, and piloted the concept really for the first year. And the feedback was wonderful. And mm. we saw these women come in and be a bit nervous and unsure and probably a bit fearful as well but through that journey build their confidence and build their skills build their networks within the organizations and then amongst the organizations uh, and then in the final period of the program we partnered with six degrees um, executive who are a big recruitment mm. company and we do transition coaching for the encore so Amazing. that they work on their LinkedIn profile and their CV and that you know they, they are really set up to then go and find future employment and then we ran the program again um, in the second year and we doubled the participation wow. and that's the goal for next year that we can create 20 roles and uh, you know really start to create more and more impact mm. we had over 250 women apply wow. so you know I guess we can't really stop until we can get a pretty big brand collective together and that's the goal amazing it would be remiss of me not to ask you about Alpha H's incredible founder, Michelle, who passed away July 2020. Was there anything in particular that Michelle taught you when you began working with the brand that has really stuck with you? The thing that stood out about meeting when I met Michelle was the sheer determination, mm -hmm. the resilience, the vision, the taking a no as a yes down the track. Watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, just that at a, at a kind of personal level. Mm -hmm. And and that where, I, where we really bonded was that product is king. Yeah. And, you know, in a world and an industry where 
a lot of focus gets put behind marketing and, and I don't – and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But for us, we connected on product is king and you put your effort into creating great products um, with great ingredients and, you know, then I, I guess my – add on to that was great chemistry Mm -hmm. and then ultimately knowing that the products work and everything comes after that and you know that might not be every brand's approach but that that was how she thought that is how I think we would you know in 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 the meetings that we had um, and we only got a chance to work together for a a short period of time um, before she passed but 90% 90% of the time we were talking about product and, in, and innovation. So I think that was another really common um, common view that, that we shared. You have been a part of the beauty industry since early 2017 and obviously had an interest in it prior to that. Over the last few years, what are some of the biggest changes that you have seen within the beauty industry? Well, the... I think, I mean, there's just so many, but I think the probably the biggest piece that stands out for me is just the size of the, the category yeah. industry and the number of brands. Uh, you know, probably too many, you know, if I'm honest. Uh, I think there's so many exciting brands out there. Um, you know, do we need all the products that exist? You know, question mark, probably not. So I think going forward we will see some consolidation and I don't know that that's going to be a bad thing. I think great products that perform will will stand the test yes. of time. Uh, but but certainly there's just the abundance in, in, in the industry is, is definitely something that continues to grow. The What will need to become an obsession with sustainability and our footprint you know it will it can it simply just can't be a nice to have anymore it must and and should be just a mandatory a ticket to play and shouldn't be competitive advantage for any brand Um, that has changed and that's only a good thing and, and should continue we talked a little bit about ingredient transparency yes and for me you know that's what the the natural beauty industry started and I I really celebrate that still and I think irrespective of the ingredients we use being very transparent Mm. on on what's in our products and how they are made uh, I believe is is, is has been a really positive change Uh, and I guess you know maybe the other really big change has been just the diversity and Mm. the abundance of channel and the ways in which we learn about products and can educate ourselves and, you know, social media has obviously played a really important part um, in that. So, you know, that's been a big change as well. I imagine a bit of overlap here, but what changes do you think we can expect to see over the next couple of years? The, yeah, consolidation, I think, yeah. is, is that's going to be a big one. Uh, Pete, I think we'll have to be really – we'll have to be really strict on products that we put into the market. I think sustainability will expand beyond just, you know, recycled materials, yeah. uh, you know, leaping bunny, uh, mm. transparency, you know, all of those things that have been around a long time. I do think that this being a sustained – well, what is – you know, defined as a sustainable brand, will also need to include how choiceful we are around the products that we put into the market. And um, I think that that can only be a really positive um, move forward. And, uh, you know, just ongoing education and um, I guess realness in how we tell our story. It's very clear that, you know, the customer doesn't want to be marketed to. It wants to be informed. It wants to be educated. It wants to know who are you as a brand and who who's in that organisation and how do you make your products and how do you think about innovation? And, and that that's the future of marketing, I believe, in, in the mm. industry as opposed to, you know, the, the airbrushing and yeah. the super curated, um, you know, styles that we've seen in the past tina my final question what is next for alpha h lots that doesn't surprise me (laughs) lots 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 you know we will we are going to stay 
very true to who we are. Um, so we are an acid brand. We are about exfoliation. We are obsessed with finding new ingredients that allow um, an even more superior process of exfoliation. And then, you know, in addition to that, what new botanicals can we mm. add to our acids so that we're constantly replenishing the barrier? So it, it's um, the, the objective will remain the same, but it's about how do we keep innovating? Uh, Australia is our heartland and we continue to work with great partners here, but our growth markets are the UK and the US. Mm. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about those markets and how the brand uh, presents and grows there. Uh, and then just uh, continuing, I guess, the, the, the team. So the team will continue to grow. And, you know, we're looking to just keep bringing more diverse people and diverse skills so that we can tell our story in a way that is really true and authentic and, and be as transparent as we can. That was Tina Randello, Chief Commercial Officer of Alpha H, which you can find on Instagram at Alpha H Skincare. To read more, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me. Thank you.